Illinois investigative news magazine. Tomorrow, if all goes well, we're going to have live special coverage from the Mission District, the historic Mission District of San Francisco, Day of the Dead celebration. Miguel Gabriela Molina's got us all ready and hyped up, and I'm looking forward. You are listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio, Pacifica Radio, the People's Radio Network. Stay tuned. You are listening to KBOO Portland, 90.7 FM. The time is 10.59 a.m. Next up is The Bike Show. Hello and welcome to the KBO Radio Bike Show, broadcasting from Portland, Oregon, on 90.7 FM and streaming on KBO.FM. All our shows are also available on www.bikeshow.portlandtransport.com. I hope this fall day, a rainy day in Portland, finds you well and healthy. Thank you for being with us today. My name is Alon Rob, and I'm joined by co-host Nedra Deadweiler. Good morning, Nedra. How are you today? I'm doing well. And you're in Atlanta, right? I am in Atlanta, and it's the afternoon here. We're, we're in the 2 o'clock hour. <laughs> and uh, you've traveled a bit lately. Uh, you've traveled to Seattle, Colorado. Any cycling adventures in those places? Um, I got a chance to actually do more hiking than cycling mm-hmm. um, uh, on these past trips, so it was really nice to be grounded in Colorado just recently and to be in the Rockies. Yeah. And um, hopefully the elections are in a week and your great state has some really wonderful candidates and some really horrible ones, so do all you can <laughs> to make sure the good people and causes win, okay? Would you do that? Yes. Pray, pray for us. Um, there are a number of Bike to the Polls events that are happening. Um, we have been a part of those events in the past, and there are several rides that are happening right now. Oh, cool. All right. Um, so uh, in about half an hour, you'll interview our guests. So I'll say bye for now, Nedra. Um, All right. And see you later. Yeah, see you later. Uh, we're broadcasting from our studio in southeast Portland, and our engineer today is Ty Walker. Thank you, Ty, and also thank you to Chris Smith and Josh Hetrick. And I would also like to extend wishes for a complete and speedy recovery to a four-legged family member named Bear and a warm embrace to Bear's two-legged companion, Zoe. In the first half of the show today, our guest will be Portland neurologist and bicycle activist Hami Ramani, a native of Iran. Hami Ramani's powerful and loving words at a recent forum convened after the death of Portland cyclist Sarah Pliner, may her memory be blessed, found an echo in the hearts of many. We are glad he is with us today in the studio. In the second half of the show, co-host Nedra Deadweiler will speak with gravel cyclist and race organizer Chris Skogan. Chris has been at the forefront of this form of racing, one that has been with us since the early days of cycling in the mid-19th century, and which has been enjoying a recent renaissance. We are glad that he will share his observations and experiences, ones born through much sweat and effort. In the first half of the show, we are joined in the studio by neurologist and bicycle activist Hami Ramani, a native of Iran. Hami is a member of the group BikeLoud PDX. In his Kaiser Medical Provider page, along with information about his medical training and experience, Hami has also included the following. My source of inspiration comes from my community. I believe strongly that we thrive more as a collective than apart. One important way I have experienced community is by using the bicycle as my main source of transportation. 
I've found that this mode of transport has brought me closer to my neighbors, friends, and local businesses. I also find great joy in taking care of our chickens, gardening, and exploring this great city by foot. Good morning, Hami, and welcome to the show. No, thank you so much for having me. How are the chickens today? <laughs> <laughs> the chickens are no longer alive. <laughs> ah, okay. Well, may they rest in peace. Yeah, that's what happens with chickens. <laughs> <laughs> and as thank you, you as a doctor know, as humans too. Yes. Uh, before we get to your current activism and some of the challenges facing Portland cyclists, can you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and your background? Sure. Yeah, my name is Hami. I, uh, I was born and raised in Iran. Uh, I was born just after the 1979 revolution, and uh, I was born in 1983. Um, and uh, emigrated to a place called Brackenridge, Pennsylvania, just outside of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, uh, when I was 10 years old. Um, uh, you know, many hardships during those years, uh, but a good childhood overall, um, and uh, thanks to my parents. Um, and uh, over the years, I, I grew up uh, in Pittsburgh. I went to uh, University of Pittsburgh for a couple years, then moved on along to, the, to Northern California, um, to the Bay Area, where um, I completed my education um, and uh, went to medical school. and. Uh, then I went to upstate New York for my, my residency, my training, um, beautiful location, mm. and uh, then uh, moved along to Southern California, and uh, now I'm here. <laughs> and um, growing up in Iran uh, until the age of nine, you said, did you ride a bicycle as a child? Was cycling popular in Iran at that time, and were there any women cyclists at that time? or? Um, you know, my, my childhood memories are slightly vague, but I do have uh, a fond picture that I look at of, of myself on a banana seat bike mm -hmm. in Iran with really high shorts as a little kid. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I think uh, bicycling was mostly uh, you go to the park and you bike. Mm -hmm. um, now, I, I walked to school. Um, you know, obviously walking was was important there. Um, but, it, you know, I, I wasn't exposed to bicycle culture, for lack of a better mm -hmm. word. Um, I d certainly didn't see women biking. Mm -hmm. And uh, I know that your life is here, but being from Iran, it's hard not to ask you about your country of birth and uh, what's and all the amazing and inspiring courage of the women and men seeking freedom. Um, do you have any family members or friends in Iran? Are they safe? And are you optimistic about the success of the struggle? What does your crystal ball tell you? Um, I want to say that uh, I have never felt so connected to my people. Um, you know, left early, so I didn't have that deep uh, understanding of my culture. I, it just was what it was, of course. Seeing these amazing, uh, courageous people, men, women, and, and trans people, too. Uh, mm -hmm. I think we're, we say men and women... Uh, but really, it's a it's an all inclusive revolution that's happening in Iran. Um, my family is there. I think they're safe. Um, I have I have a great deal of hope. Um, I think this revolution that's happening in Iran is uh, is a love revolution. Mm -hmm. um, I think that point is not being made, unfortunately, uh, by outsiders anyway. Mm -hmm. But I think it's based on love. I, if you listen to the lyrics of the anthem of, of this revolution, there's a lot of talk about heartbreak and love. And, um, and that's, that's all we need right now is, is that sensation of being open to embracing love and be having the freedom, obviously, in Iran. That's one of the issues. Mm. Um, so I think the courage of the people in Iran will succeed over fascism. Um, it will continue to be a sad, bloody battle, though. Amen. Hmm. Uh, I mean, not about the bloody battle, but about victory. Uh, lately, there have been horrible election <laughs> results in Italy, Israel. Uh, Brazil is a little more optimistic, so hopefully Ir the Iranian people will succeed. Um, and when you were growing up in um, upstate New York and Pittsburgh, did you ride a bicycle? Was that an important part of your life? So I got into bicycling as an adult um, in medical school, actually, uh, 2006. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, I did ride a bike when I first came to this country, uh, you know, just like any other kid uh, for fun, uh, but it wasn't really for transportation. Uh, but in 2006, when uh, I went to medical school, I started medical school, I rode pretty much every day, I think it was, uh, back and forth. Um, and that's how it became a huge part of my, my life. And upstate New York was a little bit less uh, hospitable to that. I did ride my bike, but I lived a 10-minute walk away from work, so I just walked. And um, what led you to become a neurologist, and what does your work involve? Um, so... Uh, I can tell you that I always wanted to be a physician. My dad is a physician. Um, I was in Iran. You know, physicians have uh, a lot of respect there, along with others. But uh, so I think that's what the inspiration was. Uh, I became a neurologist because of one professor who I <clears throat> I don't know if he's alive anymore. Doctor Wood was his name, or is his name? Uh, University of Pittsburgh, freshman year. Um, it was a neuroscience class and. Uh, he made me fall in love with neuroscience. Um, amazing, amazing professor, and it's amazing how one person can change your life. Because mm -hmm. uh, at that time, I didn't know if I wanted—I didn't know exactly what specialty I wanted to be. Anyway, um, so that's that's really how it came to be. And um, what I do now is uh, I'm a hospital-based neurologist, uh, so I see patients in the hospital. Um, I specialize in stroke, but I see all kinds of hospital-based neurology mm -hmm. patients. Hmm. And um Treating uh, stroke patients, um, where does exercise and maybe cycling fit into the picture of health and recovery? Does it have a place? Or? Well, absolutely. I think, um, I think uh, well, I know most of the diseases that cause stroke are you know, diabetes, high cholesterol, high blood pressure. Um, uh, and high blood pressure is the number one cause of stroke in the world. Um, we know that in this country, we uh, die generally of diseases uh, from being sedentary, uh, and that includes driving. Mm -hmm. I think most people think that uh, maybe they don't consider driving as being sedentary, but it is. Mm -hmm. uh, just because you're moving, it doesn't mean that you're not sedentary. Mm -hmm. So um, I think it has a lot to do with it. It, it also, uh, stroke um, can be caused by high levels of stress. There's, some research into this, um, but chronic stress over the years can uh, can lead to stroke, and we know that the way to assuage that is is to have community, to have people around us, to have support. We have a lot of stress in this country because people don't have the means mm -hmm. um, to to live fulfilling lives. So when you're trying to just scrounge for your next meal or find a way to your next appointment, um, you're going to be stressed out, mm. and we're taught to live with that baseline level of stress and I think that has a lot to do with our lack of health in this country. And when uh, you help patients recover and you suggest exercise, maybe cycling, maybe getting involved more in the community, uh, do you usually get a good response or do people once they recover you know, go back to their old habits? Or? You know, that's that's a tough thing to know as a, as a specialist because I don't follow them longitudinally. I don't follow them for long periods of time. Um, however, uh, I know that is the probably the most vulnerable point in time besides the initial presentation when someone comes in with an illness, be it stroke or other things. Once they have recovered or are recovering, they are very open. How much that translates into continued change is a question mark. Mm -hmm. But the people are certainly open to exercise and those kinds of things. But at the same time, I'm not naive. I know that once they step outside, they're confronted by a car culture. Mm -hmm. They're confronted by streets that welcome only cars. Mm -hmm. And so I don't blame anybody for going back to that way of life because the alternative is challenging. Mm -hmm. Um, you're listening to the KBO Radio Bike Show. My name is Alon Rob, and in our studio I'm with our guest, Hami Ramani, Portland neurologist and bicycle activist. So for you, what is the bicycle's magic? Uh, what place does cycling have in your life, and why cycle? All great questions. Uh, you know, uh, Cycling is so multifaceted. I think it, it serves something different for each person. But the the people I um, communicate with who bicycle, I think 
uh, we feel a connectedness when we bike. I think that that is something that seems to be true for almost all people mm-hmm. that I, I discuss bicycling with. Um, it's a connectedness to ourselves, first and foremost. You know, which one of us hasn't had deep thoughts while biking, even for five, ten minutes? It's natural. The flow of the machine is so beautiful. Um, it's it's unlike any way to tr- any other way to transport ourselves. Mm-hmm. Well, I think walking can provide that flow as well, of course, but it's slightly less efficient. Um, but since we're talking about biking, I think I think that's one of the main things: is connectedness, first and foremost, to the self. But in just in line with that is connectedness to community. We have to look at people when we're biking so that we're safe. Mm-hmm. Um, we have to communicate in one way or another, whether it's a head nod or a, you know, a smile or you know, even a couple of words. Uh, I think those things, that really encompasses the entirety of biking for me. And then you get into the minutia, like running into people you know, or or running into something fun someone uh, has posted on their uh, in their yard, or you know what have you. Um, seeing seeing birds chirp, or hearing birds chirp, or seeing squirrels run across the street. You know any number of those things. I think can can provide moments of respite from the stress of of da- daily life, um, and provide inspiration for for th- our thoughts and our feelings. And um, so I think that's, to me, w- the heart of biking. And I couldn't agree more, as, uh, and I'm saying that as a person who's uh, been on a bicycle pretty much every day of my life since the age of three, <laughs> except for illnesses and sometimes major Jewish holidays. <laughs> and I agree completely with that sense of being connected to the world, mm. to your soul, to your spirit. and uh, being aware, it's like uh, uh, an experience that is hard to to get when you're enclosed in metal and steel. Mm-hmm. Um, can the bicycle help to mitigate uh, some of the effects of climate change and also reduce disparities in our society? As I rode here from my home in Northwest Portland, uh, the number of homeless people is is incredible. Yeah. <sighs> Yeah, um, it's a, there's a deep sigh because uh, which one of us again who bikes hasn't seen that in this mm-hmm. city mm-hmm. and everywhere else? Um, it's not a unique Portland problem, uh, so it's heartbreaking. Um, I think absolutely, bicycle is a tool to be used in the climate crisis. It's an essential tool. Um, I think that. Unfortunately, we live in a society of, in this country at least, um, every person for themselves. It's hard to expect people to change their behaviors if our government continues to be derelict in its duty of providing safe spaces for people, specifically people who have been historically marginalized, um, people who are not white, people who are not men. Um, children, people who have disabilities, uh, most, most people like that we don't see. Mm -hmm. And I think that is one of the essential problems in our society. Mm -hmm. Um, I think the climate crisis is bringing that to light and we need to, we need to shine a light on that Mm -hmm. itself, that we need to tell people that, look, what we're seeing with the far-right fascism that's growing all over the world, it has to do with the climate crisis. We're all feeling the energy of existential end, mm-hmm. right? I mean, we all feel it. To deny ourselves that is uh, is a huge mistake, and we're missing a huge opportunity to change because this is this is where the love comes in. Mm-hmm. That's that's where we say, look, yeah, we feel this way. We feel desperate. We feel despair. We feel anger. We feel, at the same time, a lot of connectedness, a lot of beauty. How do we unify all those things? It's love. 
And uh, this morning we're talking about <laughs> all the big issues of life, so that that's good. Um, how would you describe cycling in Portland? You know, it has a reputation of being a good bicycling city. Is that your experience? So I moved from San Diego. I lived in San Diego for six years. Um, I moved here because of biking. Um, I had already downsized um, with regard to cars. In San Diego, it was a little bit hard to be car-free. Uh, I no longer have a car here. I wouldn't call myself car-free, and I think I think that's a misnomer. Um, I'm car-less. I don't own my, myself have a car, but I'm con constantly confronted with cars and car culture, so I'm not car-free. Um, I think Portland, um, you know, I'm pretty deeply involved in the advocacy here. Uh, Portland has uh, built a name for itself. Mm -hmm. Um, I think at some point in time, in the late 90s, 2000s, there was a moment. But I think that moment uh, is no longer here. I think that uh, the, uh, the status quo white supremacist car culture has been perpetuated by our systems. Mm. And people have followed along on that path. So you got a lot more car users. Um, meanwhile, people who bike are pr pretty much the same people who have been biking, you know. Um, and so, no, it's, it's not where it needs to be. No, I'm not happy about biking here. Um, uh, yes, I feel like every time I go out there, I might die. Mm. And that's not how we need the, our, mm. our systems to be. Um, while infrastructure and the number of protected bike lanes and bike lanes in general has increased greatly over the last 20 years, the number, the percentage of cyclists has actually stayed stagnant around 6 or 7%, while um, the plan for cycling that came out in 2010 envisioned about 25% of all rides being by bike in uh, 2030. Um, so you're involved with uh, a few groups. Can you tell us about your involvement with them? Yeah, so I'm, with, uh, I'm involved with Bike Cloud. Um, and uh, I think, I don't know, have we lost any connection here? I think we're okay. Okay. Uh -huh. uh, so I'm involved with Bike Lab, which is a bike-specific uh, bike advocacy group, but really we, we advocate for transportation justice um, with a, a kind of the bike as, as our main tool. Um, so what I do there, is, you know, whatever I can, frankly. <laughs> mm. I... I lead a, uh, a bike ride from Southeast to the PSU Farmer's Market every Saturday morning. Um, and that's been going on before I got involved with Bike Loud. That's been going on for two years since I moved here. Mm. Um, and that's really just to introduce people to biking who maybe not have biked in a long time or are new to the city. And it's supposed to be a welcoming uh, gathering. Mm -hmm. um, slow pace uh, so that's kind of what I do mainly um, I don't lead it every week anymore because of my work but every other week but the ride goes on every week so mm -hmm. if you want to go uh, go to shift2bikes.org mm -hmm. and check it out um, but I'm also on the board of, uh, of the Street Trust mm -hmm. uh, and I uh, try to help with whatever I can there kind of a connection with Kaiser and, and Street Trust there and Street Trust is a wonderful organization and we've had Andres speak uh, on our show a few months ago. Um, recently, a um, few cyclists died, um, including on um, Southeast Powell Boulevard and 26th Avenue. I went to the very moving uh, vigil where um, hundreds of people appeared, and you spoke at the forum. Can you tell us a little bit about this recent death and uh, what happened at that forum? Yeah, uh, very sad death of Sarah Sarah Pliner, who was uh, let's let's face it, I'm sorry about this uh, visualization was crushed to death mm -hmm. by a semi truck making a wide right turn <laughs> at 26. Excuse me, at 26 and Powell. Um, you know, I th I think it's just a symptom. Uh, you know, many people have died on Powell. Um, we know it's a horrifyingly dangerous place, but I think again, it's not ab just about Powell. It's not just about 26. And my comment at the forum was really about that. It's folly for us to think that putting a couple of bike boxes at 26 and Powell is going to do anything to solve the problem, the, uh, the larger problem. It might help a few people in that location. But w 
our p our leaders need to be thinking holistically mm-hmm. and you and when you say our leaders are you thinking of the bureau of transportation the mayor city council so when i say our leaders i'm talking about all of the above mm. uh, you know elected and non-elected uh, they need to start acting like leaders and and do the things that that matter i mean if those folks if the engineers who are uh engineering our streets biked on those streets mm-hmm. i really don't think our streets would be the way they are Um, And again, I, you know, yes, I brought love into it because you have to have some basis for infrastructure and a system that allows people to embrace each other rather than want to push each other away and honk. Hmm. Um, Yeah, it's, um, I mean, I I read about the, I didn't, wasn't able to attend the forum, but I read about it in the always excellent Mike Portland and, um, um, it, it seemed in a way, you know, that the people in the audience were demanding change. Uh, the bureaucrats were giving the right words, you know, to so they could continue with uh, the plans they had already. So um, how do we how do we affect them? How do we move? <laughs> uh, I just had a conversation this morning about this with with someone, and I am disheartened that there are not more people out there pushing for change Mm -hmm. and I'm not blaming any individuals what I'm saying is we need more people to affect change Mm -hmm. you know Chris Warner and Strickler and you know all these folks they know my name and they just tune me out Mm -hmm. there are the regulars like me and many others Mm -hmm. awesome advocates in this city they need to hear from the regular folks who don't advocate as their part-time job. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, We need to hear from those folks. If you're tired of getting violated by car culture, we need you to stand up and say something and say we need to end this system, which is, by the way, based on capitalism, which is the problem Mm -hmm. of fascism Mm -hmm. in in the modern times. Mm. So... We can't allow people to just become fascists, essentially. I mean, the other day I was riding my bike and open a road. This lady just whizzed right by me, honked at me. Why? Mm-hmm. And we need to call that out. We need to call it out for what it is. It's fascist behavior. And until we address the underlying problem, we're never going to solve it. Because these folks are, are essentially puppets of the of the oligarchs of mm. the fossil fuel industry mm. they're perpetuating a system so that as chris strickler at that meeting said well what are we going to do if we change pal to one lane for cars on e- each way uh when there's forty thousand cars on that road we have mm-hmm. to we have to plan for forty thousand cars emily guys made a great comment why do we have to plan for forty thousand cars mm-hmm. That's the problem. Mm-hmm. How do we break that? <laughs> we we just need to speak up and be loud, and we need people. We need you, people. <laughs> well, uh, our time is almost up. I don't know how it zoomed by so fast. <laughs> um, but thank you for your wise words. Is it okay? Do you feel okay about maybe reading uh, before we end the conversation what your beautiful words at... Uh, um, forum. Sure. And I have them here. Okay. Is this all of it or is this uh, some I'll of it? Okay. Here, yeah. okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, so I, I did hold up a sign that said love on it when I was do- saying this. When you're out there walking, biking, taking transit, driving even, do you feel love on our streets? Is there love on our streets? It's a simple question. I think it's a resounding no. There is no love on the streets. I'm so sick of the street by street. Are we really talking about bike boxes? Have you seen the pollution out there? We're talking about bike boxes. So, do you feel the love on the streets? Thank you for those beautiful words. Um, we have been speaking with Portland neurologist and activist Hami Ramani, and thank you for being with us today.
and all the best with your work in life. Um, in the second half of the show, Nedra will speak with Chris Scogan, gravel racing cyclist and race engineer. We will take a short break for some KBO station messages. Please stay tuned. You're listening to KBOO Portland, 90.7 FM. K282BH Philomath on 104.3 FM and K220HR Hood River on 91.9 FM. The time is Listening to the KBO Bike Show. My name is Alon Rob, and our guests today are Hami Ramani and Chris Scogan. Uh, co-host Nedra Deadweiler, are you on the line? I am here. All right, take it from here, please. Okay, thank you, thank you, Alon and Dr. Hami, for that very thoughtful interview. Um, I want to welcome Chris Scogan to KBO Radio. Are you there, Chris? I'm here, yes. Okay, awesome. Yeah, so thanks for joining us today, the second day of November, um, as we're entering into Indigenous History Month. Um, Finally talk with you, Chris, um, the founder of the Alamazoo 100. You are an event creator, um, and you also have really worked hard and thought in, in a thoughtful way to build community within cycling, you've talked about social justice within bike culture, and also um, put some analysis around accessibility. And I'd love to um, welcome you to the show to share uh, about your race events and just what you're doing in general. Um, But before we get started um, and go into, you know, down the trail, um, I wonder if you could tell us a bit about your background and how bicycling became a part of your story. Sure. Um, first of all, thanks for having me. Um, I'm honored to be here. Um, I am I am 44 years old, uh, so my journey started approximately 44 years ago, maybe a little more. I can't do the math on that. Um, but I, I remember getting a bike when I was a kid. I was probably seven or eight. Um, I have a photo of it and I, it was a, a single speed Huffy BMX bike with black and white checked uh, pads on the crossbar and the handlebar and the top tube and I loved that bike um, and I, when I got the photo I have is me in a black and red checked shirt which is not uncommon to find me in one of those today um, so I haven't gone very far in uh, however many years that is 37 um, I'm basically the same as I was then. Um, super happy when I'm around bikes and wearing the same clothes. Um, the big thing for bikes with me and that one in particular is the first time I stepped over it and I pushed the pedal forward, I had this like almost instant sense of liberty, right? I was as free as I think I probably ever would have been or will be going forward. And every time I've put my leg over a bike since, I get the same sensation. Um, so I think I was supposed to work with bikes from the beginning, and I'm really grateful um, that I've had the opportunity to do that. Oh, wow. Thanks for sharing that story. Um, going back to the age of 7 to 44 is a lot of time to be to have an experience on a bicycle. Um, there is a, I mean, I follow you on Instagram, so um, 
So forgive me for kind of being, you know, really in your business right now, but there was a post you talk about being in your mid-20s. So at seven, you had this feeling of, I'm going to do this for my life. And in your mid-20s, you also had this premonition about you and cycling. Can you go back to your mid-20s and share with us what you were thinking about then? Um. I mean, there's themes, yeah, throughout my life where I had these visions of being on on bikes and around bikes. Um, Yeah, when I was a – to go back earlier, I was 12 or 13 maybe um, and rolling around in the back of my parents' conversion van as we would take these summer vacations. Um, I had this – my mom would take us, my sister and I, to the bookstore ahead of these trips, and we'd get two magazines. And I would always get Mad Magazine because that was popular at the time. And I would get Mountain Bike Action Magazine. So I would lay in the back of my the the van on the bench seat and look out the window and read Mountain Bike Action Magazine and imagine myself being in these magazines as some professional mountain bike racer. Um, that didn't really ever happen. But fast forward 20 years, I was 32 years old. Um, I had been working on Almanzo for a few years at that point had been involved with um, some critical mass rides that happened in my 20s. Um, and I ended up in magazines. And I had this epiphany in my 30s where I was like, oh, man, my 12-year-old self would be real stoked right now to real like to know that, that what I was dreaming of way back when actually happened, um, which is a little bit ego-filled, but um, it happened, no less. And I'm I'm glad that it did. It's, it's been a really great opportunity to to be around bikes and get a lot of people on them. Um, can you describe for folks um, of what gravel cycling is? Because, I mean, you started the Almanza 100, which is kind of how people um, think about you and understand maybe your entry into broadly into cycling. Um, and so describe what gravel is and also share about the race. Sure. So I, I'm i from Wisconsin, Minnesota. Uh, I currently live in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And uh, up here, um, there's a lot of paved roads um, that, that are great connectors for automobile traffic. Um, and there's a lot of gravel roads when you get out of the metropolitan areas or urban areas. Um, that connect rural communities and in a lot of time in a lot of cases a lot of times um, the gravel roads are far safer to travel by bike than the paved roads are so um, I had an idea and this was coming off of um, some critical mass uh, efforts that I had made back in the early 2000s Um, I had an idea that we would start this event Um, It would be free to enter. Um, It would be open to anyone who wanted to come. And it was sort of a a cannonball-esque point-to-point event where we started in a town called Rochester and rode west to a town called Mankato. Um, And the first one there would get a prize. And the best way to do that was to stay on these gravel roads because it was safer. Um, The first year was great. So I figured we would do it again. The second year, it it blossomed and grew by four times. Um, the third year, it doubled. And the fourth year, we had 450 people show up. And that's when I kind of realized that this was a thing. Um, so, yeah, gravel, in a lot of ways, up in the upper Midwest, as we know it today, was born in that period from the work that I was doing, which was you know reduce the number of barriers to access um eliminate entrance fees because cycling can be inherently expensive anyway and then make it as inclusive as possible i was doing that there was um mark stevenson was doing it in iowa and um at the same time um jim cummins was working on his event down in kansas and the collected, collected or collective effort of those three events really propelled folks into these events 
that were taking place on rural roads throughout the Midwest because a it was safer um, and and b it was accessible. So that's really where it started, in my opinion. I mean, having walked through there um, and where it's at today, it's I think it. I mean, it's everywhere. Um, if there's a rock road, it's a gravel ride. If it's a dirt road, it's a gravel ride. Is sort of how it feels, um, and it's really shifting the way bikes are being constructed and distributed and and even ridden. Um, and I think it's opening a lot of doors for folks that maybe hadn't ridden before um, through the design and and through the efforts of folks that work in bike retail and people that organize events. Wow. Um, so that's real interesting. You said a lot um, in that last statement, just one, addressing bike culture overall. Um, so that's one thing I'd love for you to dig into. Another um, conversation, just even looking, listening to Alon and Dr. Hami talk about infrastructure and um, being car-less versus car-free. Um, gravel roads riding might be considered car free, I mean car less, car free and car less just because of who was on the roads and using the roads and how they're used um, and the infrastructure that's required or needed or necessary. Is there any sort of advocacy that's a part of gravel um, for the infrastructure that's ne needed and used in the race? Um, and then I guess maybe the last thing to kind of talk about is just your belief, which kind of goes back to um, countering cycling culture. Uh, what are your beliefs? Like, what are your core values when it comes to biking and just like creating that accessibility, that sense of freedom? Um, and yeah, could you talk about any of those things or all those things? Sure. Um, just, just so I'm, uh, it's it's uh, cycling culture, bicycle culture, advocacy within gravel, and then um, my personal opinion on the on the bike. Is that am I hearing that correctly? Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Okay. Um, so, bicycle culture. Um, this, yeah, and this may not be a popular viewpoint, but bicycle culture is human culture um, to me because it's the bike is this tool right not unlike an automobile or a pencil or a computer or a phone um it's a tool that we can use to um enhance our our personal lives our our emotional health our physical health um we can use it to expand our community um and i think um dr um Dr. Rahani touched on a lot of that very well. Um, the bike puts you out into open air. Um, I've always gone back to this idea of sitting at a traffic light um, and then sort of just sort of picturing that in my mind. And I, I drive. I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I have a car. I've had lots of cars. Um, I have been car free at a, a certain point in my life, but I am not currently. Um, but if I'm in a traffic light in an automobile, I'm inclined to keep my eyes forward. I'm operating, you know, in, in some cases, or in all cases, probably a potentially deadly weapon. So I'm eyes forward, paying attention to the lights, and then, you know, we'll move when, when signaled to do so. Um, but I don't spend any time looking to my left or right necessarily at a stoplight. When there's another human being that has, you know, blood and organs and, and a soul just like I do, like eight feet from me. There's no like interaction, not even a glance, um, definitely not any sort of verbal or nonverbal communication. That's inside the automobile. So when I take myself out of the automobile and I'm on a bike and I'm at a traffic light and another bike comes next to me, almost every time we will at a minimum look at each other most often there will be an exchange of some kind nonverbal and in in hopefully in a lot of cases there's an exchange that's verbal and that's a very human to human interaction that the bicycle allows where the automobile doesn't um so i'm fascinated by that but bike culture um i don't know if i got way off the path on that i probably did i'm pretty no, good at that perfect yeah 
um, when it comes to gravel, um, I think the populations that are participating in gravel events today are different than the folks that were participating in cycling events prior to the, you know, sort of expansion and explosion of the gravel community. Um, in that it's really the people that are promoting gravel events today are extra inclusive. And I think that's really amazing. I think it's a byproduct of how we've developed as a community in the United States um, and globally, but I think it's also a byproduct of how cycling has come along with that. And I think it's really, we really have a great opportunity to, to expand um, ridership through gravel and then beyond wherever people want to go next because it happens you'll ride a particular um, you'll ride in a particular genre of, of cycling for a while and then you either stay in that or you grill right and people maybe grow into mountain bikes or, or riding on the road or whatever it might be um, but this is a it's a gravel is a great way for people to get introduced to the concept of riding a bike. And then it goes from there. I think it really all stems to, or from, um, for me, personal responsibility, right? If I'm on a bike, I am solely responsible for the movement of said bicycle. And that's not to say that I'm not responsible for movement in a car, but I can ride as a passenger in an automobile and be passive. It's really difficult to be passive on a bicycle. So you're, you are in control of your own life at that point to some degree. Um, and I think it's, I think it flows over into the other parts of our lives that are not directly related to bicycles. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, I think what you're describing is, um, like your approach to riding a bicycle. One is community It's human centered. It's not just about, um, getting through fast, riding fast, and winning awards. I mean, it is about um, connecting to people, being connected into the environment, which is a very different experience when riding in a car or even as a driver or being a passive passenger, as you described. So, I mean, I think that um, also that reflection on how gravel has changed, um, maybe even how bicycling culture has changed, I mean, there's been a lot of activism around, um, a lot of people say inclusion, being included in things because of race, gender, gender expressive expansiveness. Um, like those, that has been like really powerful to watch um, and to be a part of. So, um, and witnessing like, yeah, that change in, like I have friends here in Atlanta that um, gravel is huge here. It's because people have a very unsafe on roadways um, and that infrastructure that is needed to make roads safer is just really slow to be designed. Um, it's not designed in a human-centered, a person-centered way, um, especially for people who are on a bike or walking. So I think that human-centered approach to just about anything, it changes the quality and like content of one's interaction. So. I think it made sense to me and hopefully to everyone else who's listening to KB, to Cabo right now. Um, I am, um, so to kind of go back to your event, I know you've talked about um, Almanzo 100 and like your departure from great gravel and racing before, but um, I think the big event this year, you are now part of the Hall of Fame, the Gravel Hall of Fame, and that really kind of re- I guess, in, inspired some change for you. Um, could you share about like being a part of the Hall of Fame? What are your responsibilities? Are there any responsibilities associated with that? Uh, I don't think there's any, no, there's no immediate responsibilities to being in the Hall of Fame. I think the, I think Halls of Fame are, they're interesting in and of themselves. Um, <laughs> It's a, yeah. Um, and I, I'll be honest, I struggled with the idea of accepting um, that nomination uh, ahead of it um, because I, 
I did what I did, right? Like I had an event and I invited some people um, and a lot of people came and a lot of people got on bikes. And I think because I was so, um, so insistent on, on promoting and encouraging the idea of personal responsibility that a lot of people's lives changed for the better as a result of coming to my events. Um, and then that event spurred and, and, you know, gave birth to a lot of other events like it, which in turn gave birth to more events and so on and so forth. Right. So there is some influence that I had. Um, but I think it's also important to know and for me to acknowledge, and I, I did this earlier this year when I, that nomination came up, um, I wasn't always proud of the work that I did because I felt in 2012, we had 1,200 or 1,400 riders and it was enormous, right? We had this huge event and it was a ton of, um, there was a ton of coverage and a lot of the brands within cycling were coming to me and like getting on the coattails and, and that was my perspective at the time, right? Like, hey, you know, you've got this great event, there's a ton of visibility, there's this thing that's happening, take this bike, take this thing, take this other widget, like, you're the best thing since sliced bread, and like, as a human being who had worked really hard to to make this thing that I was so passionate about and, and loving to, I couldn't help but hear that, and I couldn't help but take it right and like then I we had that event and I went home and looked in the mirror and I didn't recognize the person I saw because to, in my mind at that time all of these people were coming to me as the person who could like you know make gold out of out of you know dirt and the truth was if I if no one came to the event nobody cares what Chris Scogan thinks so it wasn't the work that I was doing. It was the work of the people who came and participated, which was the whole purpose for the event in the first place. So to be nominated for this Hall of Fame was really a tough spot for me because I didn't see any work that I had done as being valued, right? But since I left Almanzo in 2014, save but for one year when I brought it back and or when I went back to it in 19, which we don't need to discuss, but... Um, I lived as far away from cycling as I could because I felt like such a jerk for taking ownership of the accolades when I felt like they should have been placed on the shoulders of the people who were participating. So when I got the nomination, that was where I was at, right? Like I was living in, in somewhere in between feeling awful and feeling grateful and proud. And then I go down to Kansas to unbound for this hall of fame celebration. And the, the warmth that I received from other people who were putting on events at the same time. And since was so incredible that I, in that moment, probably for the first time in maybe a long time, if not ever really felt valued and appreciated and I had an opportunity to kind of step out of myself and see the work that was done. And to be able to be a witness to it was really pretty Im impressive, like for me looking at me, right? I was like, oh man, you actually did do a lot of great things and you should be proud of that. So I think the, you know, to go back to the question, do I need, is there a responsibility to being in the Hall of Fame? I think the responsibility is to understand that I, that I am valued and that I am appreciated and that I am capable of being loved and that I have the right to extend those three things to everyone I come in contact with. Right. That's my responsibility as a hall of fame member is basically to be, just be a good person, right. Advocate for humans on behalf of humans, all makes and models and advocate for bikes on behalf of, bikes and and humans and advocate for bikes on all makes and models like that's my job as a hall of famer and i think that's my job as a human being and as a father um and as someone who shares community with other people in the spaces that i occupy like i need to acknowledge even you nedra who we've never met in person but i appreciate you 
um, you definitely have value and you're absolutely loved. Yeah, I appreciate that. Um, I think, you know, listening to you, one, I feel like, one, the philosophical around, like, what is our purpose as a human in this world? Um, yeah, to to love ourselves, to love and be loved. I think also what I hear is the whole thing of, of a founder syndrome. Like, it is real difficult to, quote, unquote, found something, especially when it has altruistic motives. Like, it's really about addressing a need or solving a problem or creating a space, um, building community, all these things are, I mean, I feel like I'm aligned with that and it's very difficult when it becomes, people make it about the individual versus the broader context. Um, So congratulations for for being able, yeah, for being able to, um, I guess, stand back and to see what your work actually allowed for um, because it's important. Someone has to take take the risk or take those steps or do the thing just because because um, sometimes, you know, sometimes people really are only motivated by money and that's for some sort of applause and we don't get um, these pure, like, these pure places that we have to come back to and reflect upon and to say maybe this is a standard that we should uphold in some capacity. Um, so um, I'm wondering, like, after going through all of that struggle for however many years um, in yourself and external, uh, being away from cycling, would you would you do it again? For sure I would do it again. Um <laughs> yeah, I, I, you know, I'm the sum of my parts, right? I'm the sum of my experiences to date. Uh, and I wouldn't change anything. I wouldn't change anything in my life um, at all. I would do it. Mm. I would do it the same way if I had it to do over again. Um, because I'm really grateful for the place that I'm in. Um, and I'm really grateful for the people I have around me. And I'm grateful for some of the people that I don't really want around me because it reminds me that it's important to get up and, and do good things. Yeah, hilarious. Oh, my goodness. So we got, like, five minutes left. And I kind of want to um, – And I, well, sorry. I should say I'm glad you wouldn't change because you're right. We're all, we, all of us are some of our parts. And so you are uniquely you. Um, so what are you doing now? Um, and what do you think you'll be doing in the future? Um, currently, I I am very much involved with bicycles. I work for um, I work for a big bicycle company um, in North America, and I go to bike shops on a regular basis. And I I am tasked with um, I am very privileged to be tasked with the opportunity to help folks run better bike businesses, which is to say um, uh, we put an emphasis on practice so that the space, the bicycle shop, bicycle retail can um, be a benefit to the community that it is and to the community that it serves. So we really focus on getting, um, getting bike shops into a space where they can pay livable wages and you know ha- create jobs for people that are lifelong careers and not just like pass-through positions that someone does in college um all the while working you know through that that bike shop space to create communities within their community um i had a conversation this morning about community um and the importance of working to build it but also being mindful that when you, if you create community, which is something we should all aim to do, at least in my perspective, if you create community and you do it really well, the, the byproduct of creating great communities is that those communities then spawn more communities, mm-hmm. right? And then you have, you have even more work to do because the community that you helped create has become another community who's probably going to refine and, and, you know, re-examine that community and then they create community and so on and so forth. So it's really, 
you know, it's an interesting space to be at the front edge of communities like that because you can kind of make it whatever you want to make it. But then I heard a, this lyric a long time ago, and I don't know if it was from a song or from an interview, um, but it's one thing to paint a picture and keep it in your keep it in your home or in your studio on an easel. It's a completely different thing to paint a picture and give it away to the public. Mm -hmm. Because once you decide and make that decision to give that painting away, the painting no longer belongs to you, it belongs to the viewer, right? Mm -hmm. And the viewer has every opportunity to make whatever perception it wants to about that painting. So you can create community to a degree and keep it in your house or your basement but it's really not how community is supposed to happen. Community should be more like the painting that's given away. But once you do that, it becomes subject to the perception of anybody who's looking at it. So it's really, you have to be, I've learned over time, I have to be really good at letting go. Um, <laughs> and the older I get, the, the more I realize that that's probably the most important piece of my life is learning how to let go. Yeah. Wow, we are fresh out of time. Um, I think also with that letting go is saying the value is not the thing, but it is the person or the people that it goes to as well. So For sure. Um, yeah, so it's, that's beautiful. Thank you, Chris, so much um, for joining us today and sharing your experiences and your beliefs and um, where you place value in community and what that looks like. Um, and may you can continue to replicate um, community wherever you go. So thank you, thank KBO. Alon? Are we still on? Thank you. You have been listening to The Bike Show. My name is Alon Rob. I would like to thank our guests, Hami Ramani and Chris Gogan, co-hosts Nedra Deadweiler, our engineer Ty Walker, and Chris Smith and Josh Hedrick for making all shows available on www.